Let's go. 2020 is not turning out to be the worst year. Not turning out to be the worst year. We got a podcast studio getting set up right now. Um, stuck at home. Right now, I'd normally be in my office uh, about to go grab a shitty salad that cost me $17. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm. It, there might be a bright side in all of this. There might be. There might <laughs> exactly. Honestly, if uh, if the podcast is the worst thing that comes of uh, COVID for us, it's uh, it's pretty good. Seriously, I think I'm gonna have a microphone implanted in my uh, vocal cords because this is how I need to sound all day, all, all the time, all day, all the time. Actually, yeah, I don't want to talk to people anymore. <laughs> I want to have to just be like, can I mic you up? Yo, mic you up for some headphones. Yeah, if you want to have this conversation, you got to come on the podcast. Uh, I'm not willing to have it with you otherwise. Yeah, no, I can't listen to your fucking naked voice. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, there's got to be a mic and some headphones between us. Yeah, no, I need, I need to, uh, I really need to amplify your voice and uh, just remix a little bit. Um, so I was having this great conversation with the, my former developer Ben Kutner, um, and we were talking about WWDC and. Um, how there wasn't a lot of investment in home and we were talking about air tags or the app clip, the little widgets that they're now shipping. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and we were talking about how it would be really cool to, if the air tags were two way where they could be registered as eye beacons. So you know how eye beacons never really got popularized. They never actually really started selling them as some third parties really only for businesses, but wouldn't it be great if you could do Oh, actually back up. Can you, Break down what an iBeacon was supposed to be, because I, I honestly don't even remember. So iBeacons were originally supposed to be these Bluetooth interfaces that would be these hard points that you would place around a Macy's store, mm-hmm. let's say, a department store. And when you would be in this section of clothing, you could have something appear on your phone with a notification saying, open up the Macy's app to get more information about this thing. Yep. Right. So in an Apple store, when you're over by the iPads, they can pull up more information about iPads on your phone versus if you're going and looking at the iPhones, mm-hmm. they could show you that. So that, that was released in 2013. So seven years ago at long, WWDC. Long time ago. Seven yes. WWDCs ago. Long, long time ago. And nothing ever came of it, right? Nothing. I really never heard ever. of a single execution. Never. Um, and with these app clips, it's more or less that's what they're doing, but through NFC, right? So it's not Bluetooth where you just walk up and do anything. You have to actually go tap something or mm-hmm. take take a photo of it. Yep. Um, and then it kind of pulls up this little mini app. So the the a use case that I originally thought about it, it was restaurants, right? Where you come in to a restaurant, you sit down at the table, and right when you walk in, it set, pulls up a notification. Mm-hmm. You slide the notification, and you instantly get a menu that you can order from without ever having to yeah, talk totally. to a waitress, yep. right? Yep. Um, and it doesn't download the app on your phone, nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's more or less what they're doing with app clips. But wouldn't it be great to have a consumer version of this where... I want to set them up around my house where when I come next to my bed, I want it to go into like bed mode. When I go sit down at my desk, I want it to go into desk mode. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want it to change the home screens that I see. Right. The different widget layouts. I want it to. Do you want that to function like iBeacon was supposed to function, which is essentially proximity, no proactivity based? Or do you want right. it to function the way app clips are working? No which is you have to proactively scan something on your desk. No proactiveness. So I just walk over to my desk. It's like the classic um, Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates was in his house where he wears a chip and then he, when it knows that he walks into the room, it changes the temperature, the lights yeah. come on, same thing. Yeah. I want to do the same thing. So I can even set HomeKit automations based off of iBeacon, right? So it knows that once I walk into my 
bedroom, the light should come on, right, and all of these things. Is do we know are air tags an evolution of the iBeacon technology, or is that that technology now been sunsetted? And no, the technology is still out there, and I think honestly the uh, app clip tags are probably the closest thing to it. Um, which are, in, I mean, they're definitely, they're the, the biggest difference is that you have to, like you said, you have to proactively walk up to them and actually do something rather than just having it passively um, ping you. So I actually think this is a, a brilliant point on a bigger topic, which is Apple's such a successful company that a lot of times it's hard to ignore the success and focus on or even think about a lot of the things that they've released in the past that have totally flopped um, because there's been quite a few. Actually, I... Yeah, HomePod Definitely. is probably on the uh, on the, the line of flopping. iBeacon was a massive flop. Um, you know, going way back, the Apple Newton was a total like disaster of a flop. Um, and there's so many other examples of that throughout history. I mean, what was the uh, iTunes social network they tried to release, like iPing or whatever? Yeah, like, yeah. what a total joke, dude. They, they tried to do it like three times too, actually, it, and it, it failed every it, time. Now it's like iTunes Connect or Apple Music, whatever. Like they just there's stuff that they put out that absolutely fails and a lot of people have been talking about um you know a lot of f far more respected than us <laughs> tech reviewers <laughs> have been saying they think app, app clips are going to be the next because one it's very proprietary right it's not like just developing an app in uh, apple and then you go to android and you're kind of checking all the boxes this is totally new thing that you have to start developing or adding on and it's supposed to be simple and easy to do but how many developers are really going to do it? Um, I think actually a lot are going to take advantage of it. I'm, I, I don't know what the statistics are because Google did launch um, at Google I.O. like two or three years ago already, actually, the same thing with these instant apps, right, where you kind of could come in and just take a little section of an app, right? So you click on a restaurant's Yelp page and you could go native that Yelp page, but it doesn't download the full Yelp app. It just downloads that one restaurant's page in Yelp so that you get that full native experience without having to download the full app. Um, so I wonder what the adoption is there because I haven't actually I was just going to say, I would, I would love to know on both sides of the equation, what was the developer development rate like of actually taking advantage of that? And then if it exists, how many users are actually taking advantage of it? Now, Android, we know, is a much more fragmented experience in general. So Apple users right. tend to take more advantage of the features that are in the Apple ecosystem um, versus there's a lot of Android buyers that buy Android because they're cheaper and actually don't care about the customization and the other things that people classically go to Android for. So, um, I mean, yeah, that's a huge TBD on Apple's kind of success right there, whether or not app clips are ever going to become a thing. Uh, but I, I certainly see, see the use in, you know, with simple examples like you've already explained, um, you know, just going into a restaurant and pulling up a menu really quickly would be so compelling. Yeah, I think that it, it's a good point that Apple's failed at a lot of things, but I think it's also interesting because they set standards, right? I mean, think about how many technology shifts they've caused and like they've literally put entire companies out of business mm -hmm. by making those changes, right? Whether it's ports, whether it was the switch from Flash at the time, which was incredibly controversial, right? I mean, even think about like Qi charging, right? If they had not selected to be compatible with Qi charging, that probably would have changed the entire uh, face of wireless charging. Um, Apple Pay, right? Think mm -hmm. about that, right? I think um, that's been a huge catalyst 
to kind of going and getting all of these uh, small businesses to actually be supporting it. Um, if it was just an Android thing, it would not have that same adoption level at all. So um, app clips could be another one of those stories too. Totally, totally. Yeah, as you were talking about that, it made me think about um, tangential and dependent industries and companies that have kind of been built off of Apple's success. So, I mean, Apple by itself has a, you know, it, it broke a trillion dollars in uh, total market cap last year. Um, it's not there yet, but I mean, we know that Apple alone is a massive, massive part of the economy. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that we've actually seen entire sub-industries and entire companies be built off of Apple's success. So I think a prime example of that are companies like 12 South that specialize in Apple accessories, essentially. Um, I think the first time we ever saw like a, a really large-scale case, like phone case uh, industry pop up was after the launch of the first iPhone. Yeah, in case for sure, spec. I mean, there was definitely tons of these guys that popped up. Mophie's pretty much been their entire success is piggybacked on exactly. the rise of iPhone. Exactly, and so. then you have the other accessory players that just do things like cables, right? And have made a fortune, like Anchor yep. has been built off of the success of Apple. And then you have the more controversial things like the development industry. The Apple completely democratized the ability to be a developer and to live and work on your own and build a company where you could develop software at scale and put it in millions of users' hands overnight. And I don't know, how familiar are you with the Hey.com controversy? Pretty familiar. I've definitely followed all the Twitter feeds. Yeah, the tw so the Twitter is really where <laughs> it was all going on. Um, and, you know, DHH's opinion right. from Basecamp is that you are being held hostage by Apple by having to pay their 35% revenue share agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and you're required to offer in-app purchases. I thought it was really interesting how he talks about how um, it's like a hostage situation. And, you know, we put in all this work. Why should Apple be able to share in the revenue? Um, why should smaller developers be forced to deal with the same thing? And I actually vehemently disagreed and I'm, I'm interested to hear your opinion here because I look at it like Apple built the platform Apple built like invested millions if not billions of dollars in building out um, the app store it was the first app store we had web apps before that Apple created the ability to even have an app store and Google had to copy like let's be very clear on that there wasn't a Google app store um, Google Play before the app store Apple introduced that and since then, it's made software developers billions of dollars. So him saying we're Apple's holding us hostage, I actually go, the only reason those people are in the positions to be developing software right now and making money, good money, is because Apple did this. Sorry, but this is the tax on the highway. Right. This is the toll charge. Right. Um, if you don't like it, man, you don't have to develop for Apple. As a matter of fact, if Hey.com is so good, your users will all switch to Android, right? If you're not willing to pay the the Apple toll fee, well, I don't know about that because I think that that's like a very high bar to cross to get your app to be so good that they, that it's an iPhone killer, right? I don't I don't think that that that's something that Android can't even necessarily do. I don't think it's necessarily fair to make every developer put that burden on every individual developer, though. But if your users want to be using the Apple ecosystem, guess what? You got to pay the toll to be on that highway. 
Right. But I guess the question is, is that can they get away with highway robbery then? Because they do control the toll and it is a full monopoly and it's whatever price we set, we set and we do it. I think then the hey. It's not a monopoly. It's not a monopoly. Why is it a monopoly? Because if you want your app on an iPhone, you have to go through their systems. Right. So unlike a Mac where I could just go on any website and download the software. Right. And it is truly democratized, which is actually that doesn't work anymore either now because you have to have a, a Apple signed trust certificate for an, a Mac app to work on a Mac now. Uh, that's not totally true. So it, it just gives you a lot of warnings and then you have to just kind of <laughs> just go through it and say, fuck yeah, it, I don't care. Exactly. You just get, you know, open anyway and you can do it <laughs> if you really want. But um, obviously they're discouraging it as much as possible, but they still allow it in that platform. Um, I think a good example was uh, Sketch too. Uh, they put up a huge thing back in the day, not about the sense of having to pay fees to Apple, but just the have the review process, right? The, the mm. inability to have control over your product where there is such a delay um, that you're waiting for them to review every update and you can't just do rapid deploys um, where something goes wrong. It's really easy to just roll back in most cases on web. And if you really have your own distribution network, yeah. but you can't do that through them. Have you ever owned an Android device for any length of time? Uh, no, I've only played with them. Um, I've used them for several hours, uh, but I've never uh, fully like moved my life over to an Android phone for uh, a day plus. Yeah. So I think I had a stint back in 2013, I think it was, maybe 2014, where I had an Android phone for like all of 10 days and tried to switch my life. Hard, the hardware sucked back then. It was being produced by LG. It was the Nexus 5 is what I had. Um I thought Android was really cool. I thought the hardware software experience was horrible at the time. But the one thing that I noticed more than anything was how atrocious Google Play was. Um, that in 2014, I was going to study abroad and I was going to be gone for four months and um, I wanted a tablet. And I didn't want to spend a lot of money on an Apple tablet at the time. And it was, I don't know, the iPad wasn't the most compelling thing for the price at that point. And the Nexus 7, was it the Nexus 7? I think yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like selling, an iPad Mini or whatever. Yeah, it was like 150 bucks, and I was like, no brainer, done. Got the Nexus Seven. Sucked so hard, dude, so hard. And again, there were some cool things like you know custom swipes and whatnot in VLC player for video and and some other things like that that were kind of cool because developers had the latitude to do that. But you go into that store, there's so much crap in there. And you're expected as a user to filter through that and be like, no, this right. is a crap app. This is a crap app. Yep. Oh, this is probably malware. Oh, okay. This one's good. Oh yeah. I know this. Oh, even looking for like a VLC, you'll get like 15 variations of a VLC. Um, one of them actually from VLC, everyone else like a fucking right. um, knockoff. Yep. And you as the user have to deal with that. I, I totally get why developers might be frustrated by the Walt garden and by, um, release cycles being held for a longer period of time. But I think the Delta and the experience from Google to Apple makes that so worth it. And at the end of the day, what are you doing? You're trying to develop an experience for end users. And so sometimes you have to sacrifice a little bit to make sure the end users are getting the right experience. I'd much rather have people getting a great experience on Apple and waiting two weeks and being more stressed out every time we need to deploy something. Um, no, you're, you're right. I mean, that's the good thing that Apple's always been really good at is creating that user trust, right? Where it's always been, you know, 
Macs are the things that don't get viruses, right? Windows are the virus laden computers that are never going to run and have all of this malware and spyware on it. Yep. Macs are not going to have that, right? And same thing with the iPhone, because it is such a restricted platform, um, they actually have a 100% guarantee of that, more or less, um, unless you start going through like the jailbreaking and so forth. So um, I think from this user trust standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. I think to get back to the hey.com thing, what's interesting is kind of where that actually ended up landing um in the end and kind of how they ended up finagling a like exit ramp for for all sides um so that the controversy would end where it's like i think apple has a legitimate point where we don't want you to create apps that just aren't usable necessarily um but hey did that great example of all of these business apps that are just a sign in page um and like you can download it and you can't use it yet unless you have a sign in so um i think the 14 day free trial was definitely just a offboarding like how how the hell do we both get out of this with our saving our faces and it was let's do a 14 day free trial and then you can charge them through your platform and we won't have to take a fee look they ultimately had a pretty smart move to to navigate through it backing up to dhh and jason freed in general i can't stand them anymore i really liked them in the beginning and i was like okay here's our warriors for like tech justice yeah, they just sound like they're whining now. Oh my God. There's every week there's something new. And I've started to realize these guys are just genius marketers. Right. They know how to game the system. They know what's going to rile up VCs. This entire thing, they both became highly vocal and built up this audience and following right before Hay launched. Otherwise, their only platform was like Rework and their books. And right. You know, right. they talked a little bit. Right. They weren't creating controversy. They weren't like, the conversation and they are now i think getting a little egotistical and they're like how far can we push it how far can we push it i bet you they were like totally had planned for the 35 percent in that purchase fee and they were sitting there and they're like i bet you we could make enough of a stink on twitter that we can get around <laughs> this and they're like no and one of them's like yeah you definitely you definitely, definitely can. can and dhh is like all right i'm just gonna start going ham on them and just piss everybody off until Apple can't avoid it. And they did it. And they did it. And they did it. So I'm thinking these guys are just like the number one trolls. Like Russia should hire them <laughs> if they want uh, a particular candidate to win in 2020 because these guys know how to game the system so well. That's so funny that you say that. And what's really interesting too is that Ryan Singer, who had their, like, who actually had a pretty good following prior to all of this, who's very big jobs to be done guy. Um, he's the head of product for Basecamp. He kind of stayed out of a lot of it, actually, and tried to keep his head down a little bit. I think he kind of tiptoed into it a little bit. But, um, but like you said, for Jason and uh, DHH, like, it was, it was all in, balls to the wall, gung ho on this, like, how far can we take this? Oh, dude. And I think next they're going to be like, let's just go after Trump. Well, you saw they're already going out. He's already super involved in the clubhouse scandal now, too. He's the one that's stirring it all up there, too. Oh, yeah. No, so. they can't stay. Oh, I think they're pissed that they didn't start it. <laughs> they're like, oh, my God, there's a bigger controversy right now than us. How do we get in it? How do we get in it? How do we take this over? And now they're just going to be skewering, skewering. Uh, what's his name? They already started going after Dan yeah. Primack, right? And uh, the um, uh, what's the founder of Clubhouse? They're going after the uh, Andreessen Horowitz partner. Um, Paul Davidson. Everyone's going after Paul Davidson. Uh, Mark Andreessen? No, 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 no. It was, uh, 
Not Bijan. Bijan's at uh, oh Balage. Balage, yeah. Bijan's over at Spark Capital. Love Bijan, by the way. Shout out to Bijan. I gotta, I gotta check him out. Um, yeah, I mean that whole controversy is something else, and I honestly, I don't care. People like people, they're gonna have. What do you care? Oh, come on, you're gonna go after Zoom because people have a fucking fifteen person Zoom audio chat and they're talking shit about journalists. Like, come on, come on, it's not Clubhouse's fault. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just think it's. Uh, but the part I didn't get about it is why people thought that all of a sudden. Like no one would be listening in a public chat. Like if you're like, why is it like, why are you saying things in like this public forum and chat expecting people not for it to not get out there? Like, I feel like in this day and age, like you should be expecting anything you say that's like in a public sector like that in a public forum like that is going to be. But it's not really public, right? It's, it's public to clubhouse users that are invite only. But that doesn't mean that it's not public. But they... The whole point of Clubhouse to date, I mean, they keep calling it a beta so they don't feel like they're excluding people. It'll, I don't think it's ever going to come out of beta. The whole point of this thing is it's a platform built for a highly curated demographic. And you ha it's essentially the currency of trust, right? You only get invited because there's trust built up or someone can reputationally vouch for you. It's like a country club, right? You need to have sponsors if you're going to get in. Clubhouse is essentially like a digital country club for VCs. Yeah. But, but Superhuman kind of did that too and, and eventually just enough people get in that enough people recommend people that the network expands enough that it doesn't actually become that exclusive. I think it's different. I think it's different because actually Superhuman encouraged people to refer people. To refer, yeah. Because they wanted that network effect. Right. Clubhouse is doing the opposite. They're trying to stay as small as possible. It's interesting. Uh, and so I actually think they probably are doing a decent amount of vetting before an invite... Again, like Superhuman's also automated. So you send out a referral, right? Sahar, someone's going to reach out. They're not going to do any due deal on you. If you have a pulse and you breathe and you respond to an email. Well, they do the, the survey. As long as you answer their questions the way they want them answered, you can. Uh, yeah, but even if you don't, there. both of us failed the survey and both of us were like, yo, by the way, I still want to do it. And they were like, okay, fine. Like, well, if you're I, had, to pay. I made you email them being like, no, you guys definitely want this guy as a customer. Yeah. Trust me, this guy's like going to be your number one guy. Oh, and I and I failed and I just reached right back out. He's like, sorry, it's not a right fit for you right now. And I was like, I no, it is. <laughs> uh, you'll, here's my $30, please. <laughs> Let please me give on. it. To and they were like, okay, whatever. Like, it's your mistake. Um, and it wasn't a mistake, but. Um, I think Clubhouse, they're probably actually doing due deal on these people. Like if, if I were to get an invite from someone right now and they looked me up, I probably wouldn't be extended the ultimate invite to Clubhouse. Well, the, you know what this actually reminds me of? This actually reminds me of the startup that you had showed me, Golden Wheel, all about oh, the yeah. social networking component of this, right? Where it's, you know, if you really are a prominent person, LinkedIn is more or less useless for you, right? The yep. inbox is crap. Exactly. So um, they were trying to do that exact same thing where it's a total vetting process, referral process only for people of that caliber. And even once you're in, there's limited access. So that's actually different because Clubhouse, once you're in, you essentially have the keys to the kingdom. Mm. Golden Wheel actually is, is interesting in that it takes it further. You're in, but you actually can't, your voice can only extend to your inner circle. So even though Rishi vouched for me and I'm now in on Golden Wheel, if he posts something, I'm only talking to him because he's the only person in my inner circle. If I wanted to connect with someone that he 
is it connected with? I have to ask him permission to go talk to, to, go talk to that other person. And if he says yes, I'm willing to facilitate that introduction right. and use my reputation and trust to facilitate that, I can now be connected to that person. And they'll now see and hear my voice. Right. So it's really interesting in that it entirely uh, gates you into a trusted world. And it's only through going through intermediaries that you can extend your reach and your voice within the network. So I have access. I can see what other people are posting because they're Rishi's connections. I can't interact with them. Yeah, I mean, it's doing what pretty much has happened naturally offline for exactly. for all of time, yeah. right? Um, where it's a trusted referral and the warm lead is the best way to even get a VC to talk to you, right? Is getting that warm introduction from a founder or someone on, that works for one of their portfolio companies or so forth. So uh, there is nothing like that warm introduction and someone saying that I'm willing to put my reputation on the line to vouch for that this will be a worthy of your time, right? And that you see who's telling you that and that you trust that person and you respect that they're actually going to do that because you've let them in your inner circle. It's definitely a really interesting play, I think. Um, and especially just, it's not going to obviously compete with LinkedIn, but um, definitely for that upper echelon of business executives and celebrities and so forth, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be great. Totally. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's high touch. Because right. LinkedIn right. is now super low touch. Right. I mean, it is table stakes. Yep. It's table stakes. I mean, I have over 3,000 connections on LinkedIn. I probably know, probably recognize the faces of 90% of them. 10% I've literally never seen before in my life. Uh, and then probably like 60% of them I've had a conversation. Uh, less than that. Probably 30% I've had a conversation I can actually recall. So how meaningful is that network? Yeah, no. I see a lot of signal. I get a lot of signal. Right. And I love picking up on signal, but I'm, I'm not getting a lot of value out of it. I had uh, I had curated my LinkedIn really, really well um, up until Zip. And then we were looking for angel investors and it was just cold reach outs all day on LinkedIn. Just, will you connect with me? I see you're an angel investor. I have this cool thing I'm working on. Will you like talk to me? And ever since then, I just have like all of these random connections that were just like a one one time reach out. A lot of them never even responded, but just accepted. I was going to say, right? how many you responses know? did you get? I got actually a pretty good amount. I mean, it was definitely a decent like hit rate. We were in the we were over ten percent hit rate for sure. That's on, not terrible. Uh, so it was good. I mean, um, were you paying for email uh, emails at that time, or are you just taking advantage of free connection requests? And no, yeah, we messages? were we I. I still have premium to this day, actually, from it. Oh, so you get um, whatever your 12 extra yeah. in-mails. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Fucking rip off LinkedIn premium. Yeah, and then we were obviously doing it from my account, my co-founder's account, Murray's account. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, we were yeah. trying to use it all up as much as we could. Speaking of Murray, we've got him on the docket. Yeah, exactly. In an upcoming Coming up. podcast. Yeah. Let's go. We're going to be talking about the state of New York City real estate during COVID. Um, he's currently the head of operations for Luke AI uh, for their New York operations. And um, I think he might actually even be bringing along uh, their head of real estate to uh, discuss that. So Unreal. definitely stay tuned for that one. 